All right, so a brief warning. I had some news stories all lined up and had intended on bringing you guys a standard episode of The Week in Doubt, but then I found myself watching a recent interview Joe Rogan did with The Amazing Atheist, and they began talking about The Exorcist. As you longtime listeners or viewers, if you're watching this on YouTube, probably know, I'm a fan, and I'll put fan in quotes, of The Exorcist. The reason I put the word fan in quotes is because I saw the movie as a little kid, and it scarred me for life. So I have a deep respect and appreciation for the movie, but fan might be an odd choice of words for something that plagued me with nightmares for the better part of two decades. So no heavy atheist talk this week. Instead, let's dissect this clip of Joe Rogan and TJ Kirk talking about The Exorcist. And to put things into context, they were discussing sleep paralysis and sleep-related hallucinations before they segued into the topic. Um, but these are just hallucinations. I mean, maybe uh, or no, no, maybe your fucking not, house is haunted. They're not son. interdimensional beings. How okay. do you know? Because uh, you sound so confident. I've read pretty extensively about it. Because like when that shit happens to you, you want to know like what's going on here. I'm recording this after a night of drinking. And uh, my, my voice is cracking like Peter Brady. So here we go, take three. Actually, before we get to The Exorcist, I think I'll comment a little on this stuff. When I was younger, I used to experience sleep paralysis quite often, to the point where sometimes I was afraid to fall asleep. If you've never experienced it, it's a really awful and disturbing phenomenon. It's been a while since I studied up on it, but I believe the way that works is that at certain points during your sleep cycle... Your body induces this kind of temporary paralysis to keep you from thrashing around or acting out your dreams and harming yourself. With sleep paralysis, it's as if you're starting to regain waking consciousness, but something goes wrong and your body stays in that paralytic state. So it feels like your body's encased in lead and your mind or consciousness is trapped between sleep and waking. It can induce this kind of horrible claustrophobic panic where you feel like you're always going to be stuck in that frozen state, but then eventually you come out of it somehow. It's funny, I noticed years ago when I started taking antidepressants for my chronic headaches that coincidentally the bouts of sleep paralysis had seemed to have gone away. I looked into it and sure enough there's a theory that there may be a link between low serotonin levels and sleep paralysis. I was reading recently that supposedly some people tend to experience it after an MDMA high when their serotonin stores are kind of depleted. As far as sleep hallucinations go, like everyone, generally speaking, I tend to experience some minor hypnagogic or hypnagogic visions. You know, when you're falling asleep and in the dark of your closed eyes, you kind of see these floating images. It's hard to describe, but they almost look like negatives, like they're made out of that same stuff as those floaters. Some people get those kind of spots of light, for lack of a better term, that move across your vision. I don't think I've ever experienced hypnopompic hallucinations. That's when you see things that aren't there while waking. I had a friend who happened to be Christian and who was much more open to the supernatural than I, who used to experience what in retrospect sound like hypnopompic hallucinations. He'd be waking up and think he saw someone standing at the foot of his bed, which is a common feature or theme characteristic of the phenomenon. Some have suggested that people who think they're being visited by ETs, nocturnal visits by aliens and such, might be experiencing hypnopompic hallucinations. 
When I was really small, I had some disturbing bedtime hallucinations that still stick with me. One was kind of hypnagogic in nature. Every time I closed my eyes, I would see this kind of twisted tree made up of human faces. And another time, I felt like I was wide awake, but the Disney decals on my bedroom wall seemed to be moving, and I found it rather disturbing. Man, I am a weird dude. But anyway, back to Joe and TJ. So when that and shit actually, happens, they can they can induce that state, and what, uh, it, what si uh, you know, like they can put you into sleep paralysis, and you'll feel the presence, and you'll experience seeing things and all right. that stuff. They can it's, put you in that mindset. It's a matter of electrically stimulating certain areas of the, the yeah. scalp, right? Yeah, which is really fascinating, isn't it? That they can actually target areas of the scalp and induce certain feelings and certain thoughts. Yeah, we kind of we kind of delved into this last time we talked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, consciousness and the afterlife and wonder, things of that nature. I wonder though, like, what would cause you to recall like an image from a really fucking cool movie like that and have it be like what? What weird combinations uh, of things would cause you know, like when I was something reading, causes a hallucination to take a certain yeah. form. Like, what is it? Is it your insecurities and fears? Is your 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 nightmarish it's vision? Probably of that? this the same thing that leads you to have certain visions and dreams and things. I right. mean, like it's part of your memory and psychology, just manifesting and, and imagination yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, there was a guy uh, I was reading about his experiences, and he he would see the 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 guy from the front of the Exorcist poster oh, standing sure. in his room. He'd see that that silhouette <laughs> holding the the. Was that Joe's rendition of tubular bells? Uh, but what TJ's describing actually does sound pretty creepy. Um, he's describing that iconic image of Max von Sydow as uh, Father Lancaster Merrin when he first arrives at the house of the possessed girl and looks up at the window of her bedroom like he's bracing himself for what's to come. He basically appears as a silhouette in the kind of airy, preternatural glow of a streetlight. The image was used on posters and on the cover of VHS and DVD versions of the movie. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I used to have a lot of exorcist-related nightmares, and they didn't cease till I was probably in my late 20s. So ironically, although a skeptic and an atheist or agnostic atheist, I was still plagued by these bad dreams inspired by this horror movie that dealt with the supernatural. I remember I had this one particular dream where I had finally had enough. It may actually have been a, a lucid dream to some degree. There was possessed Linda Blair on her bed in that, in that dark, creepy room, and I was like, I'm not going to be scared by this thing anymore. And man, is this messed up. But in an attempt to conquer my fear, I went in close to it, the possessed girl, and tried to kiss it, and it bit my tongue. Yeah, once again, I know, weird dude. The briefcase and shit, and looking uh. up at the the building. Dude, when I was a kid, that movie was fucking terrifying. Like, if you could watch it today and never fully impact what it did to people like me. What year is that? Like, I want to say it was like 76. Does that make sense? I believe The Exorcist came out in 73. I didn't see it till years later when it came to television. Which means I was like nine years old. Find out what, what year The Exorcist was. What year was that? I remember seeing the 25th anniversary. 73 is when it came 73. Out. So yeah. I was younger than that. Who the fuck let me watch that? That's <laughs> ridiculous, Mom. Mom, how dare you? It's funny how many people in my age group, uh, and maybe a little older, uh, I'm younger than Joe Rogan, so Gen Xers, etc., have been affected by that movie. I think Trent Reznor uh, also used to talk about how The Exorcist scared the crap out of him as a kid. 
I watched it as a little kid with my family, uh, my father staring down at me with a shit-eating grin, delighting in how scared shitless I was. But uh, I remember being scared out of my fucking mind at this movie. Yeah, there's there's the image right there. That movie fucked with my head for years, and I started thinking about demons and the idea of being possessed and what, what could happen. Yeah. You watch it today, you'll laugh your ass off. I actually disagree with that. The Exorcist doesn't scare me quite the way it used to, but I still think the special effects are way ahead of their time. There are some things like the famous pea soup scene that seem a little silly to me now, and during the infamous head-turning scenes where her head spins uh, all the way around, you can see how stiff the animatronic dummy is. But I still think it holds up, all in all. And the older I get, the more I appreciate the acting, writing, and uh, William Friedkin's directing, etc. But I can see how if you're a younger person who's maybe grown up watching all these newer horror movies with intense CGI gore, etc., uh, and then you go and watch The Exorcist, how it might fall flat or not have the same dramatic impact as it did on people like myself or Joe Rogan, who were really young at the time, and it may have been the first or one of the first horror movies we'd ever seen. Uh, and maybe uh, having a Catholic upbringing with all the superstitious ooga-booga about demons, etc., uh, may play a part, too. Um, but I think a big part of it was just the startling audio and visual effects. Now that I think about it, generally speaking, the fear of being invaded by malevolent spirits or entities probably goes all the way back into the myths of prehistory. The idea of demonic possession goes back at least as far as ancient Mesopotamia, where people believed in these kind of sickness demons. Uh, and you can find the idea in shamanic cultures, too. So there's something about the idea that really touches a nerve with us. Uh, makes sense in a way, though. I, I think it has to do with this deep-rooted psychological fear of losing control of ourselves to the quote-unquote other, to some outside force. But anyway, back to these guys. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was, uh, watch today, like, I was watching. I was watching that movie uh, at my uncle's house, and my mom came in the room, and she she's like really easily frightened and stuff, and she just thought it was hilarious. I think I remember watching a documentary about the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, cherry subject matter. And he described watching The Exorcist in the theater and how it was one of the funniest things he had ever seen. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I guess it actually, its the letter is actually referred to as The Exorcist Letter. And it dates to January of 1974. And he refers to The Exorcist as the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. Um, and he said the same thing about another movie, uh, I guess, some months later. The Mysterious Mind of a Psychopath. Hey, TJ, your mom and the Zodiac Killer have something in common. Kidding. The Exorcist is hilarious. I mean, it's funny by today's standard, but, like, if you go watch it in the context of, like, watch horror movies that came around around the same time and before it, and it's like, okay, you can kind of see why this blew people's minds at the time. Well, when it happened, when that movie came out, there had never been anything like on that level where a little cute little girl had becomes a demon and starts ramming a cross into her pussy. Yeah. Just fuck me father, fuck me father, slamming. What was she saying? Fuck me Jesus? What, what did she I think say? she was just saying fuck me. I don't remember what she was saying. I think she saying. was like, fuck me, fuck me. Oh. <laughs> That's actually not a bad impersonation uh, or impression by TJ there. Oh, Jesus Christ. I and like when she's like, your mother sucks, sucks cocks in hell. hell. Yeah. 
It's a beautiful moment in cinematic history. I, I believe in the edited for TV version, Freakin himself spoke the demon's line, uh, which was rewritten to your mother still rots in hell, I think it was. I should go back and watch that version again. I'm curious how well uh, Friedkin was able to imitate Mercedes McCambridge's distinctive voice. Didn't people used to say jokingly something like, your mother sniffs socks that smell, or your mother sniffs jocks that smell, or uh, your mother knits socks in hell would be, uh, would be interesting too. As shocking as a movie can be, there is a certain inappropriate humor to that over-the-top dialogue. Couldn't believe that that was actually in a movie, that they said that in a movie. Yeah, I mean, like, they would have trouble getting away with that fucking now, Yeah, just given that. the age of the actress. Oh, they wouldn't be allowed to. It would be illegal now. It would, it would be illegal. Like I mean, that movie, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't like show anything. Uh, but yeah, it would probably be controversial even if it was made. Just making that little kid act like that. Yeah. Like, look at those pictures of her. Actually, I believe some of the more intense scenes featured an adult stand-in named Eileen Dietz. I think that was the actress's name. And I think, according to some accounts, Linda Blair may have just mouthed or spoken words that were similar to the curse words. Uh, the actual lines were dubbed in later, uh, using recordings of Mercedes McCambridge's voice acting. But I could be wrong. I think Linda Blair did film the crucifix scene herself, but she was actually stabbing a box or something that was between her legs. No, not that kind of box. And, uh, and, and was supposedly unaware of the implication that masturbation was taking place. Like when she was screaming and yelling. First of all, that little kid was fucking terrifyingly good. Yeah, I don't want to take away from Linda Blair because I really like her and I think she was iconic in that role. But ironically, I think what really made her performance so disturbing and powerful, at least in those full-blown possession scenes, was the voice work of Mercedes McCambridge and the makeup effects of Dick Smith. I believe it was uh, Dick Smith. Uh, Dick Smith sounds kind of porny. <laughs> well, I think that was a, a big part of it, at least. Uh, credit where credit is due, I do think that she did a good job. And I think freaking... Um, made a wise choice in casting her. There's something about the juxtaposition of that cherubic face with uh, McCambridge's voice. Oh yeah, and you know the they they uh, she was they didn't like have much well like care for her well being or anything either because like you know that scene where she's spasming and flopping up and down. They were doing that with wires and that fucked her back up for life. Yeah, Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn uh, both injured their backs on the set of that film. As TJ was saying, Linda Blair got hurt during the filming of the scene where she's flopping around on the bed. She had this kind of harness or corset that was supposed to keep her secure while members of the crew on the other side of the wall shook the bed around. But the harness or whatever it was came loose and her torso was wrenched violently back and forth. I think she yelled out in pain and they actually left it in the movie. The director, William Friedkin, was pretty hardcore. Ellen Burson, I think, was injured during the bedroom scene where Reagan slaps her mother and uh, you know, all the furniture gets flung around, etc. I think she was attached to a wire or a cable or something and Friedkin had his guys yank on it as hard as they could to simulate her being thrown back. Uh, sounds like the actors went through hell, no pun intended. But in the end, the guy delivered a groundbreaking movie, but I guess that might be cold comfort uh, if you're left having to deal with uh, lifelong back injuries. Really? Yeah. Oh, like man. T 
total disregard for for her safety or well-being. That fucked her back up for life when she was a little kid making yep. this movie? Yep. Wow. Like, what did it do to her back? Do you know specifically? Uh, I don't know. It just gave her back back issues. I don't know if they were severe or, or what, but she something got pulled or something got out of alignment. Wow. I mean, you saw how violently they had her yeah. flopping up and down on that bed. Yeah, that's not good. So, you know, the, the standards were different, I guess, at the time. But, but uh, I think most people should realize don't uh, don't permanently injure a child just to get an effect you want in a movie. Tell that to William Friedkin. Oh, yeah, and, and a final note, I don't know why I'm laughing, this is kind of sad. I just read that William Peter Blatty, the author of the book the movie was based on and a well-respected screenwriter, passed away back in January, I think it was. He was 89. As I said to a friend, hey, at least he left behind a rich legacy and he lived to a ripe old age. Uh, I don't believe in an afterlife, but if there is one, I hope uh, you're not being defiled by Pazuzu. Uh, so on that note, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. I also recently re-released the Weekend Out St. Patrick's Day holiday special, entitled, appropriately enough, A Brief History of St. Patrick. So look for that in the podcast feed, or look it up here on YouTube. You know the drill, Facebook, Twitter, all that crap. Uh, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout, or use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. Oh, fuck. Yeah,